Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is extremely exciting. You might have heard Rich Summer and I gushing about his feature debut, The Mortuary Collection, on the Creep Show episode. Ryan Spindell is here. Welcome, Ryan. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I look forward to battling to the death over this title. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, let's talk about your relationship with horror overall and where it all started for you. That's a good question. Uh, I think I think it started. I was kind of one of the one of those late bloomers to horror. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, I was uh, <laughs> I was really scared of horror. I think I had. Uh, it's so funny how often I hear that this movie be brought up when people talk about movies that scarred them. But um, I caught Nightmare on Elm Street when I was really young, probably five years old. And uh, it <clears throat> broke me. And from for probably the next, maybe almost the next 10 years or so, I refused to watch horror movies because I was a huge wimp, to be honest. I was, I was scared of, uh, my mom had me convinced that horror movies would ruin me uh, psychologically and I would not sleep and my life would fall apart. And so I stayed away from them. And uh, instead I was more of a... Um, <clears throat> It's funny, I, I was trying to think about the other day what kind of movies I would watch if I wouldn't watch horror, because all I watch now is horror for the most part. And uh, I remember I would just watch um, parody movies, like the Zucker Brothers movies, Airplane and uh, Hot Shots and Top Secret was a, a personal uh, repeat rental for me. Um, and I think that was the sort of way that me and my friends communicated was through humor. And so I think that was sort of my way into movies, you know, of, of course, on top of the, the classics like the Spielberg movies and, you know, Raiders and uh, Star Wars and all of the, the usual genre stuff. Um, but it wasn't until I was in uh, sort of beginning of high school that I stumbled into uh, the horror genre uh, with Evil Dead 2. Uh, and then right after Evil Dead 2, it was, it was Dead Alive by Peter Jackson, uh, who will come up later. And it was the first time that I realized that horror wasn't just teenagers being slashed up in the woods, that it was... Uh, <laughs> probably one of the most cinematic and, and uh, artistic and, and at times beautiful of all the genres. And that really sort of began my love affair. And from there, I kind of had to dive in and, and see everything that I hadn't seen up until that point, um, which was uh, uh, an over an overflow of the good and the bad. But to this day, it's interesting because, you know, I think as creators, we're always trying to figure out why we do what we do and, and why we love what we love. And, and I can see influences from those Zucker Brothers movies even now in my work and I can see how even though I have an appreciation of all the the different subgenres within horror um, those early those those early early kind of splatter stick movies still kind of resonate and still kind of maintain through everything I do to that point I'm curious to hear if you have a favorite subgenre if it is those kind of splatter stick um, and if part of the appeal of an anthology movie like the mortuary collection is being able to sort of explore and indulge in several different uh, subgenres within the one movie yeah yes I mean a hundred percent to the second question that's that was sort of the appeal was to was to be able to play in all of these different uh, swimming pools. Play in the swimming pools? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> sure, analogy. sure. I don't think about that one. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, you'll see this a lot with fil first-time filmmakers where it's, a, you know, a kitchen sink movie that <laughs> there's this feeling that you might never get a chance to do it again. And so you kind of throw everything you have into it. And I had sort of a unique opportunity with this movie to really, like you said, explore body horror, explore a ghost story, explore a slasher movie, uh, and kind of like play with all the tropes within each Um in, in an environment that was a pretty a pretty safe environment because 
you know, c- coming coming of age on on the creep shows and uh, Tales from the Crypt and the sort of that elevated tone kind of gives you this license to to play. Yeah, uh, and that was something that I, I that really appealed to me was was you know. Nothing, no idea was off limits uh, within the world of, of this story and sort of pushing those boundaries and, and kind of finding out, you know, like sometimes you, we push too far maybe and, and we, we learned uh, that that was too far or sometimes we didn't go far enough or some of the things that we maybe focused on like, oh, this isn't, there could have been a more fun way to do this. But I do remember as we were making this movie, we had a sign on the wall that said, but is it fun? And every time we would make a decision, we would say like, that's a, a, an interesting story solution but is it fun or, or can we figure out a more fun way to do this so yes the second part of the question a hundred percent an opportunity to play as far as my favorite horror subgenre, you know i don't know I, I i maybe maybe not having a distinctly a distinct one favorite is why i ended up making this <laughs> film i think I, I was trying to work my way through it i can say that uh, my least favorite is probably the slasher movie mm. which i've always felt was uh kind of the romantic comedy of, of horror and that like it, it felt very it wasn't that i don't like the aesthetics i don't like the ideas it's that i don't like the predictability mm-hmm. of of what it what it what it was at least i think it's always evolving um but that ended up being a big component of uh me making one of the stories in the mortuary collection the babysitter murders <clears throat> and actually through the process of making that sort of segment i ended up watching halloween several times and watching a lot of the classics and i kind of fell in love with the subgenre to some degree, but but to this day I still find it to be a little bit of a of a tropey a tropey world that doesn't quite excite me in the ways that like fantasy horror or body horror or, or these other these other subgenres that have this like endless possibilities. Yeah, I find it pretty interesting that the two that are that I think have the least barrier to entry, which would be paranormal and slashers in terms of budgetary constraints, um, lend itself to people maybe pulling their influences a little too hard and creating kind of a, a repetition that isn't always the most positive thing. I, I yes, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, and it's interesting because I, I have this conversation a lot with my, my friends who work within the genre. And this like misconception, this old misconception about horror being the cheapest and the easiest genre to pull off. And I find, I find it to be exactly the opposite. I mean, I, I, I wish... I often wish that I was sort of compelled to make quiet character pieces of <laughs> 20-something sitting in an apartment talking about life. But unfortunately, the, the ideas that sort of come out of my brain have big monsters and big set pieces <laughs> and they're period pieces. And it, it, they're the most complicated clockwork type movies to make. But I, but I agree. I guess I guess maybe if you really follow the, the, the paranormal formula or if you really follow the slasher formula, I guess you could still probably make something for pretty cheap. But the movie we're talking about today, definitely not cheap. Uh, we're talking <laughs> about The Frighteners, appropriately originally conceived as a Robert Zemeckis Helm spinoff of the Tales from the Crypt TV show by co-writers Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson, partners in life as well as filmmaking. Although she tends to get left off uh, of the credits by her own volition. Is that true? Is that true? Does she, she, yeah, really? Yeah. She, I was, uh, I was, so Peter Jackson on the Blu-ray does this, like, um, this really great, like introduction to the movie. And he talks mm-hmm. about all of the, um, the stuff that went into it. And he, he kind of glosses over it, but he says that like, 
she's not a like a person who loves the spotlight, and so they were like, one of us has to has to be the one who's going to do that, and so it's going to be Peter, and we'll just work together on on stuff, and you can you can be the one who has to deal with all the press and everything. <laughs> Which is funny because it's like you know Peter Jackson, part of this long lineage of uh, incredible male filmmakers who are fully supported uh, and assisted by incredible uh, female filmmakers behind the scenes yes. uh, who, who very few people uh, even are aware that, that Peter Jackson has had a co-writer. And I think every film since meet the feebles, I, I want to say. Yeah. It's a classic, you know, Deborah Hill always uh, never, never gets yep. the spotlight when people are talking about Halloween or the Carpenter movies. And uh, well, we're here to change that. <laughs> <laughs> But they had been working on a script for Heavenly Creatures about a murder in Christchurch, New Zealand, when it came to them, which feels like an interesting leap, especially in tone, which kind of splits the difference between his splatter phase and Heavenly Creatures for this movie. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like you were talking about originally, uh, was it Z- Zemeckis? Was it Zemeckis that came to him and said, we want you to write a, uh, a movie, a Tales from the Crypt movie. Is that correct? Yeah, well, they, they were like, we have this basic idea. We think that it would be good for Tales from the Crypt. And then it, it kind of blossomed out from there. Which is a great way to start, right? Like, <laughs> you start knowing it's going to be a Tales from the Crypt, so you're already going to go bonkers mm-hmm. with it. And then uh, th- this is the only way, especially especially now, this is the only way we would get a movie like this at this budget level, was to have to start with this IP of, like, bananas uh, horror sort of anthology filmmaking and then expand it into a a two plus hour uh, feature. (laughs) Yeah. And between the quality of the first draft that they submitted and the excellent reception to heavenly creatures, Zemeckis decided that he'd actually just produce and Jackson himself would be the director with universal setting a budget of 26 million and giving Jackson and Zemeckis final cut, which is a huge sign of faith in his ability here. uh, And certainly atypical for him to get that on, on what is his first big budget movie like this. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) I love, I love how, I love how these weird mechanics click into place and these movies are born. Yeah. And the budget was a huge deal for Jackson because as he points out in this director's cut intro, he views this movie as a real pivotal moment in his career, especially because of what it meant for Weta workshops. And Weta Workshops is, of course, now a titan in the effects game with six Visual Effects Academy Awards under their belt. But at the time, George Port was Weta's digital artist and the sole member of the newly formed digital effects division (laughs) during Heavenly Creatures. (laughs) It's awesome. I I, I feel like you have to correct me if I'm wrong here because it's been a while since I've I've sort of dug deep into this movie. But uh, I feel like they ended up buying a bunch of computers specifically to make this film and then after the fact we're like well what are we going to do with all these computers maybe we'll make lord of the rings that's exactly right he he said that there was 500 cg shots in the frighteners and so they had to expand from one computer to 35 and he said that this is the connective moment between his splatter work and the CGI heavy work of Lord of the Rings. And he said that the first phone calls for that movie started during post-production on this because he was like, what the hell am I going to do with all these computers? <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It, it's also such a great, uh, it is a great bridge between sort of his old way of making and his new way of making films. I will say that there are some visual effects in it that are great. There are some that don't quite hold up because it was early uh, CGI creature effects, yeah. but um, he still manages to 
infuse a ton of practical onset elements into all the effects to keep them feeling visceral and tangible. So even though some of the wallpaper monster stuff doesn't quite hold up today, he's still got those amazing like canted angle shots of like dishes falling onto the ground and carpets flying up and people falling over. And he's really sort of tying this like practical effects genius of the old school with like what will become, you know, a visual effects genius of uh, the Lord of the Rings and beyond. Absolutely. In addition to scale models to make the town look like the American Midwest, because he wanted to film in New Zealand, but they were like, no, it has to be set in the Midwest. Uh, Lots of prosthetics and stuff as well. Rick Baker designed the makeup for Judge, which took five hours to apply. (laughs) Wow. So good. That jaw is such a good, such a good effect. It's amazing. And because of the heavy effects lift, The Frighteners is one of the longest production schedules ever approved by Universal, which I thought was interesting, from May 14th to November 16th. And they still wound up having to get a few extra months and another six million from Universal to finish the movie. But But they were so impressed by the rough cut that they not only complied with this, but they moved the release from October into a blockbuster July slot and offer Jackson the job directing the remake of King Kong based on the rough cut of this movie. Uh, and King Kong, you know, it gets a lot of grief, but I like that remake. Oh, my God. So, wait, do you know what the actual shoot, the, the length of the production was, the shoot days, in, in days? Um, so, I have the initial shoot that was approved here. I don't have the actual extra months that they got approved. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a different time. That sounds like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, they got the, the time they needed to make it work, which is great. And Danny Elfman did the score, famously a Tim Burton collaborator. But I always like when he kind of branches out from that. It works with someone else. I like Oingo Boingo a bunch as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a very Elfman score, too. I listen to it sometimes when I write. <laughs> it's it's perfect for that. It's very peppy. It's got a lot of zip to it. Mm-hmm. Classic Elfman. And the cast is also incredible. You get Michael J. Fox as our lead, uh, Frank Bannister, Trini Alvarado as Lucy Linsky, Jeff Combs as Milton Dammers. Oh, my God. The oh, legend. my God. He's so good. Everybody is so good. I mean, I remember, like, as a kid... Well, I guess I wasn't a kid. I, well, as a teen watching this movie and seeing Michael J. Fox, I just had known him from Back to the Future, as most people do. And seeing him in like, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's a, a hardcore serious role, but in this more serious role as an adult, I just loved it so much. I remember just be, like, like being like, oh my God, I want to see Michael J. Fox in everything. And at the time, I know that he was already starting to sort of struggle uh, with uh, with his illness and and sort of I'm sure and I don't know if this is one of his last feature or one of his and end of his uh, his run for a while there but um, but man I just I just love seeing him and and Jeffrey Combs is just oh my god he's so he's so good I just I've watched those scenes again and again and again <laughs> Peter Jackson really figured out the right the right key to turn to get him to be at his like a hundred percent oh yeah the twitchiness is just unparalleled. Unfortunately, the movie kind of flopped on release with several contributing factors, including, first and foremost, competition from Independence Day, which was a smash hit and also opened in early July. Now, uh, the Frighteners also released the same day as the first day of the Atlanta Summer Games. And I, Peter Jackson was talking about this as well. And he was like, I went to them and I said, hey, are you worried about this? And Universal was like, 
no, our research said it'll be fine. And I thought, huh, you know, I mean, there's only been three Olympic games in the U.S. in the last 100 years, so I'm not sure what their research could show, but I guess they know best. Turns out they didn't know best. (laughs) Oh, my God. But people have come around on it, even declaring it to be the best horror movie ever made right here on this very show. (laughs) It's funny. I watched it it again last night with my girlfriend who had never seen it before. Uh, And she very much has a similar taste as me. Um, And she liked it. Uh, And so I was like, you liked it? Like, you didn't love it? And she was like, I liked it. And I was trying, and so I, I had this like, you know, secondary person there with me to kind of like see it through their eyes and kind of have an understanding. And it seemed to me that her criticism, which I think is a criticism that most people would give it, is it's too much movie. There, mm-hmm. There's almost there's almost too many movies. It sort of has the Spider-Man 3 thing going on a little bit where there's, there's, there's a lot of good stuff, but it's almost too much good stuff that any one thing kind of loses spotlight. Now, for my tastes, I love every one of those components so much that you just put it all together. I'm <laughs> I'm the happiest I can be. But for her, even though she has very similar tastes, she was she was very much like I just kind of wish we could have been seeing one thing. Like I know at one point in time she had mentioned that um, you know the the movie opens with uh, with the, the woman being harassed by the ghost and, and the shotgun and, and her 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 mom, and then we don't see those characters for <laughs> maybe an hour or so into the movie. Yeah. Um, so she, I remember her being like, well, I forgot about that subplot altogether. So, so I do think that beyond the summer games, because I, I wonder how many types of people who love the frighteners are also going to be watching the summer games. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that, if there's a whole lot of overlap there. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but, um, but yeah, that's, that was sort of my takeaway from sort of breaking it down with her. No, I think that that's a really interesting point, and I can see that view as well. You know, I also am really enjoying everything that's going on, but you can see how if somebody was like, okay, it's just Frank Bannister dealing with Patricia and the ghosts, or it's Mm -hmm. just Frank Bannister being chased by Milton, who thinks that he's a fraud. You know, either Uh one of those could be their own primary antagonist, really, but instead, they right. have to both be these looming figures. And for my money, it creates this great, like, farcical energy that is so, so through the roof that keeps everyone running around constantly that I really enjoy. <laughs> but I can see how that might be a little a little much for someone. Yeah, I, I, I also love it. And I, I think you can kind of see uh, Peter kind of keeps Peter. Mr. Jackson, whichever, that that feels more appropriate. Um, He kind of continues this type of storytelling into Lord of the Rings, but he's now playing on this sort of much larger playing field. And I think it's more easy to accept all of these, you know, divergent storylines and these different character arcs and all of these different components. I think the one place where people like, you know, kind of go after Lord of the Rings sometimes is the, the multiple endings, which again... I love the multiple endings personally. Yeah. But I think that's one area where like people can really sort of hone in on, on this sort of thing that Peter Jackson loves that maybe they doesn't fit the traditional mold of storytelling. I don't think that means it's wrong. I think it just means that people have become so programmed by a very specific way of seeing movies that anything that's kind of alters that feels somehow jarring. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't, if I start talking about this, I'll talk about it for the entire hour that we have together. So all I'll say is I want to wrap up for every single character in Lord of the Rings. So the amount of endings doesn't bother me. <laughs> Same. 
<laughs> but to get into the actual movie starts off so cozy. You know, you get this this old Universal logo, which I love, and the great old house, very reminiscent of classic 50s and 60s horror. This is the former Fairwater Sanatorium. And that Elfman score kicks in right away to let us know that things are already happening. Uh, you know, we go through the floorboards to see a woman in a nightgown fleeing the house. And we get our first quick look at those CG effects as the walls themselves reach out for her. Now, as you say, these do not look perfect because it's early CGI. But you can see what they're going for and you can put yourself in the shoes of someone for whom this is brand new, exciting technology. And I think that this is just awesome stuff. You know, it's very like Freddy Krueger coming out of the wall to bring it back to nightmare on Elm street. Looks great. Brings it into the modern day. I'm on board. Uh, yeah. And it's very, it's very reminiscent to me. Anything that's set in this house throughout this movie brings me right back to dead alive slash brain dead uh it, it, it just embodying that you know the the wild-eyed uh, mother character <laughs> with the with the hair and the uh the sort of uh all the the sort of rich wallpaper and the, the old mahogany and it's very gothic yeah a lot of canted angles i love the the kitchen there's a scene where the the, the ghost figures moving through the walls in the kitchen and, and i said earlier like everything's being knocked over that felt very similar to the the kitchen sequence in, in dead alive yeah um and so that it's it's getting my like it's getting my excited, like oh, old school horror vibes right away. And I love these it's Peter Jackson and he's kind of drifted away from this with every movie, but he's still like full force embracing these like dramatic push-ins on characters with a wide angle lens. <laughs> a classic. <laughs> I hope he never leaves that uh, behind. If, if everything else goes, you got to hold on to that, Pete. I'll call him Pete. That's yes. my friend, Pete. Okay, okay. I'll let you. I'll allow it. Um, But whatever this thing is, is following her through the house, as you say, causing raining chaos on them. When this old lady pops up with a gun, says the wicked will be punished, blows its head off. Great start. There's an unexplainable heart condition plaguing the town of Fairwater, claiming over 30 people in the last four years. And people say the shadow of death has fallen over the town once more, referring to the 30 years prior murder spree by Johnny Bartlett. Michael J. Fox is leaving the funeral of the man the newspaper was reporting on with the heart condition piece, acting very strangely and getting into a yellow beater that stands out compared to the rest of the black funerary cars. And again, amazing visual storytelling. You know, you see him kind of muttering to himself. You see this car marking him as an outsider immediately. It's just incredible filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, he's like it's the it's a low angle on sort of mud, and he's like slipping and sliding in the mud as he like approaches this this group of onlookers. He's kind of wearing a brightly more of a brightly colored coat too, so he really is popping. Mm-hmm. And and it kind of begins this like pretty incredible color motif throughout the whole movie, and how the different sort of characters are depicted in a in a way that's really harking back to the Tales from the Crypt. It has these these, these poppy sort of punchy colors throughout. Yeah, and, you know, this is the kind of thing where it's like, well, they could be going for this visual representation, or it could just be me reaching. But I like the fact that, you know, him sliding around on the mud, you're like, oh, well, he's emotionally adrift. We see that he's a little bit out of control. This could be something that they actively thought about. It could just be me applying meaning to something that isn't really there. But regardless, the fact that 
that is there for me to connect with, I think, says a lot about this movie and how all the little pieces really function together in a really well-oiled machine. Honestly, I think it's intentional. I, I think this is the... This is the kind of level that Peter Jackson and Fred Walsh have been working on from the very beginning. Even in the very broad, splattery movies that they first started making, the sort of mechanics and the the level of detail is is top notch. And that's the thing I've always appreciated. It's like they're like highly intelligent, uh, highly thoughtful filmmakers working in this like wild, over the top subgenre that I think is is such an interesting combination. We just don't get to see. Yeah. Frank drives like a madman down the hill, eventually taking out someone's lawn and giving them his card where we find out his name, Frank Bannister, psychic detective. Great. It's well, great. I, I got a question for you. Here's a question I've always had. Why does he drive like a maniac? I'm not sure I quite understand that based on his history. I think that he is so just not interested. He's so untethered from the earthly realm at this point doesn't care thanks to the death of his wife that uh, if he dies then he dies sort of thing especially okay. since he knows that there are ghosts so okay that's a good i think that's a good theory that's that's what, what i would also say but it it did used to confuse me uh for as a, when i first watched it a few times i was like <laughs> or he's just a guy who drives like a loony <laughs> <laughs> that's right oh it's also interesting uh worth noting that as you said earlier this whole thing is shot in Wellington, New Zealand, which has this extremely distinct look to it. It does feel a little bit like Southern California in the way the hills work and the way the sort of water sort of wraps around this town. But the town itself looks nothing like anything in the United States, sands maybe some stuff in the Pacific Northwest. So that already creates this like very interesting, fantastic vibe where you, you hear the American accents, you see the license plates, you understand it's set in the United States, but it's other. Yeah, absolutely. Back at the building from the beginning, but now modern day, the elder Mrs. Bradley hostily greets Dr. Lucy Linsky, a new doctor at the medical center, and she's seeing another doctor's patients while he attends a funeral, including Patricia Bradley. Now, the signs all point to Patricia being abused by Mrs. Bradley, who says that even though it was accessory after the fact, she's a murderer and can't be trusted. And it's it's very fun coming back to this movie time and time again and being like, Man, she is so awful about communicating it, but she was correct. <laughs> uh -huh. That's right. That's right. And and it's sort of like it it feels a little bit like Peter Jackson's kind of building off of uh Dead Alive in in the evil mother character by basically creating a similar house, creating a similar dynamic with a an adult character who has serious mommy issues, yeah. but then subverting your expectations by, you know, the reveal that comes later. Totally, totally. Next, we get a flashback of the spree killing. Pretty gruesome, but Busey is doing a good job here. I, I think that Jake does a, a really fantastic job here as the villain. Uh, got me a score of 12, sir. That's one more than Starkweather. <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> and the news report says that Patricia was a collaborator who was in love with Johnny. And it pulls out to reveal that it was Dr. Linsky watching a tape of the report. And it double reveals that her husband is the guy whose lawn got wrecked. These are the components, the scripted components that I was thinking about last night when I was watching it that were really blowing my mind. The, the, these gears are so tightly connected. It feels loose, but it's so specifically plotted for everything to fall into place in just the right way. It, it really is special. Definitely. 
And it goes on to say that Patricia was sentenced to life in jail, but got a conditioned release after a few years. And I also really like this scene between um, Dr. Linsky and her husband, because to me, it kind of feels almost like a parody of Poltergeist. They're in their pajamas. Suddenly she gets lifted in the air. The doll attacks them, although this time it's a raggedy Ann instead of a clown. So it's almost also like the first Annabelle movie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just think that it, it's fun for him to take this this very iconic moment of Poltergeist and you know poke a little fun at it and 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 use it in his own unique way. Yeah, absolutely. Even the house, even the house, kind of has that Poltergeist vibe to it, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. It, it's funny. It's funny. It feels like the design of the house is an idea of a house in the United States created by somebody from New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the tract homes in Poltergeist, isn't that kind of true of them, too? Sure. Sure. <laughs> More stuff is flying around, and a chicken with dramatic lighting approaches. So Dr. Linsky calls Frank, who comes screeching in, taking out more of their fence and the remaining lawn gnomes. They agree to forget about the fence in exchange for clearing their house. Some very funny moments when he whips out his gun and she gasps and he just shoots out some holy water. Classic gag. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one thing I, I realized is, uh, so I own this on Blu-ray, but last night I didn't have a Blu-ray player, so I watched it on Amazon. And I realized as I was getting to the end that there are, the, the Amazon version is significantly shorter than the Blu-ray version. So the chicken com- beat wasn't in Ooh. my cut. So I was, tr- I was trying to figure out which parts were sort of cut and you just illuminated the first one. There you go. Yeah. It's about 15 minutes shorter from the director's cut to the theatrical one. So nothing to sneeze at. Mm-mm. Now he deals with these emanations in quotes. I'm doing big finger quotes here for the, for the listeners <laughs> at home. Um, and he, he collects them in a little baggie and he disposes of them. But when he turns around, he sees the number 37 glowing on Ray's head. And this clearly really throws Frank. I really love how it kind of plays with your expectations here of, is he a fraud? Is he for real? Oh, I think he is a fraud. And then for them to turn on you like this and say, he is being a fraud, but also is for real. (laughs) Like, it's just... Perfect way to split the difference and and totally whichever way you were leaning, how you could no one could expect that. It's true. It's kind of interesting seeing Michael J. Fox as sort of this anti-hero character mm-hmm. too, considering he has such a guy next door, good guy vibe about him. Uh, so I really love I really love that, and I think that sort of plays out throughout this whole thing where he's like struggling with his own sort of moral decisions uh, throughout as he as sort of things begin to spiral out of control. Yeah. Ray's not interested in hearing about this number, though, and he forces uh, Frank out of the house at water gunpoint. (laughs) As he heads out, we see the spirit from before that chased Patricia push out from a wall behind them, which I think is a very fun and eerie moment. Really works to be like, oh, a a simple shotgun blast to the head is not going to be enough to take this thing out. Um, (laughs) Cool, cool stuff. He returns home and the truth comes out about the haunting. As Ray surmised, it is indeed a grift, though he is psychic. He uses his gift to talk with two collaborative ghosts, Stuart and Cyrus. Cyrus, played by Chai McBride, who I'm always a fan of. Love to see him pop up in this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're all kind of begrudging partners. A very cool moment when Cyrus's head goes around the light bulb. 
another like just fun oh, yeah. little effect moment. I think that might have also not been in the cut I watched. Oh, I, I think a lot of the stuff, when I was trying to remember what was missing, I think in the Amazon cut or the, the theatrical cut, it's a lot of this interaction with these with these two ghosts. I think mm, that was tripped out. That sounds very possible. They're demanding better conditions from Frank, who is unimpressed. <laughs> not even giving them <laughs> a little dignity as he sprays fly killer right into Stuart's face, which this also <laughs> looks really good. And we're finally introduced to the rest of the gang, which is a ghost dog and a ghost cowboy looking guy named Judge. He's he's very mm-hmm. cool. And these are, ghosts are awesome. This was like my favorite thing when I first saw the movie. Very reminiscent of Ghostbusters, but like sort of pushed to a more comedic level. Yeah, and they each get to have their like era or thing that they're from. Like Cyrus is cool, and and like he like threatens Frank, and Judge is a Western guy, and Stewart's like a nerd. <laughs> Like it's, from the 50s, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Judge is tired and wants to retire, but and suggests that Frank do the same, saying that death is no way to make a living. Fun line. Great line. But Frank is currently living with these ghosts in an unfinished, soon-to-be-foreclosed-upon home, uh, unless he coughs up $15,000, and he waves this off. And he's scared by what looks like death, but is actually just Stuart and Cyrus in a black sheet. Which, uh, it's funny that he is still, like, frightened by, like, ghosts and stuff. <laughs> right. Good point. Good point. <laughs> in order to raise this money, Cyrus and Stuart head to a huge house to haunt them. But when Frank shows up, she has read the paper claiming that he's a charlatan and turns him away. So he heads for the paper to say, what the hell? And the editor tells him to buzz off. And as he leaves, he runs into Peter Jackson himself, dressed as a punk. That's fun. That's right. And I think I'm not 100% sure, but I think one of the babies in the house that that they're haunting with is Peter Jackson's baby. Oh, wow. There you go. After uh, they, they bounce off, he sees that one of the many funeral processions through town contains a mourning Dr. Linsky before running into Ray's ghost, literally. <laughs> we get some interesting world building here where Frank says that there's a tunnel of life to get to the other side. But if you don't go, you get another chance every few years to become a pure spirit. But in the meantime, you're this cloud of bioparticles that actually do degrade, hence judges condition. I think that this is a really cool way to handle just like the idea of ghosts that I don't see that many imitators of, but works really well for me. No, I know. And it also sort of starts to establish the 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 rules of of what ghosts can interact with and how that they sort of interact with surfaces like you know they fall through floors it's sort of like a little bit like the uh the patrick swayze movie ghost and that like at first you're sort of completely unable to control any of your surroundings you're just tumbling through the ether but as you sort of go on you start to great gain an understanding on how to manipulate objects and how to like walk on floors and, and be a bit more like a living entity yeah we get a fun Arlie Irmy scene as Frank takes Ray to the funeral. He's approached by both the town's police chief, who tells him a little more about the deaths, and Lucy, who asks for a message from Ray. Now, I love this triple date that they go on to Excalibur. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. It's interesting, too, because every time I watch it, I think to myself, how are they going to create a love story between these two characters considering the fact that her husband just passed away and every time i'm like yeah they kind of did it they pull it off they they really do and it really is kind of shocking that they pull it off (laughs) (laughs) 
but we see that Ray is kind of a jerk. We get a little more of his backstory, and and she was unhappy in the relationship because Ray blew $16,000 on a bad investment. We also learn a little bit about Frank's backstory here, though, uh, including why he can see ghosts. He says he used to be an architect, hence the house, until about five years ago when he got into a car accident, but that's unsurprising based on his driving. And he says... (laughs) He says it altered his perception, and that's why he can see them from this near-death experience. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, again, where Ray is sort of just getting the, the hang of moving stuff. And so Ray threatens revenge on Frank after finding out that he can spill wine on his pants. <laughs> In the bathroom, Frank sees another guy with a number on his forehead, and then he sees the, like, frightener wall spirit moving around. And he looks around for it while the guy is weirded out, but Frank can't find it until it suddenly emerges from the mirror and grabs this guy's heart, squeezing him to death. This was literally shown in the intro clips while Peter Jackson was talking, and I still was startled when it like jumps out of this mirror at him. <laughs> it's a great – this is a, one of the examples, I think, of, the, of really excellent uh, CGI with the mirror effect and the thing coming through. It also occurs to me that – I guess the uh, the Grim Reaper is really starting to go on a tear in the, in, during the course of this movie, right? Because so over the past, was it four years? He's, he's killed every so often, it sounds like, sporadically. But now, right. as this movie starts to ramp up, he's just killing willy-nilly, sometimes two, two to three people a night. Yeah, yeah. You know, he got 12 that first spree. And then, uh, you know, he's already at 36 by the time that we see him over the course of just the five years. And it certainly seems to be picking up speed. Yeah. (laughs) Frank is wanted for fleeing the scene when he goes after the spirit and Lucy is taken in for questioning. And this is where we finally see Jeff Combs 47 minutes into the movie. You know, in terms of delayed introductions to an antagonist really impressive and the fact that it still works for him to have such a limited amount of time to build this guy up incredibly impressive not only from a writing standpoint but again from jeffrey combs in a performance standpoint yes this is the same exact time in spider-man 3 when venom shows up (laughs) and it actually is special agent milton dammers as venom (laughs) (laughs) that's right he is i mean this Jeffrey Combs performance is just everything from let's see he's got the he's got the contact lenses that make his pupils look completely dilated as if he's on mushrooms all the yes. time. He has a a Nazi haircut that I think if if I'm not mistaken I think was his idea that he that he he showed up with that haircut. What else does he have? He's got some, he's got some scarring on his face. Yeah, he's like a little lunacy with his trench coat and his scar and his overall weirdness. And his his little mannerisms are just incredible. I mean, it's I, I every time I watch it, I, I'm like, I don't know what Peter Jackson did to get this out of him, but like, kudos. I want to see those two work together again. That would that's that's bucket list stuff. That's the dream. Yes, yes the dream. so fun as he dashes off to puke. Sensitive guy. He has a problem <laughs> with women yelling. <laughs> Now, we find out that this is because he's 25 years undercover with cults and sects, and he thinks that Bannister is full of shit. And he says that the car crash was because he was drunk and driving fast and arguing with the passenger. That's what we call the crash trifecta. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the passenger was his wife who died. But there were some suspicious circumstances around it. 
most notably the number 13 carved into her forehead. Bum, bum, bum. And I I think a really wonderful detail that's very Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, is that when he's talking, talking about the backstory, he explains how Frank was building the dream house for him and his wife and had promised her a garden but had mm. instead built a basketball court in place of it. And that's what their argument had started as, and that will come to pay off later, I think, in a really wonderful way. Yeah. Now, Judge says that the spirit is death incarnate, and Frank drives off to the museum where another person has died. And it's the reporter, and she has the number 39 on her forehead. And again, this is another person who maybe had a gripe with Frank and is looking a little suspicious for him. Now, he sees the number 40 on the editor's head, and he says that she's next, which she interprets as a threat, causing the police to very quickly draw their guns on him. <laughs> That's right. And uh, what, we, what, what follows is a uh, gunfight in a museum involving uh, Frank's uh, buddy ghosts, the Grim Reaper, and the local police force, uh, including some quite pervy elements from the judge and the, the local... Uh, undead mummy exhibit that I feel like has to be a tendril left over from the tales from the crypt genesis <laughs> of this movie, because the judge is literally molesting one of he's the horned up. Yeah, he's, horned he's, up. he's, he's like, I did it. The, the thrill of victory is surging through me. Mummy ectoplasm is flowing again. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to have sex with this mummy, which sets off a distraction that allows Frank to escape, taking the editor with him to escape the spirit while Judge gets sliced in half by the guy that's in pursuit. Now, the car the car goes off a cliff. And As the editor do. isn't... Yes, exactly, of course. No one is surprised by this. And <laughs> the editor is indeed killed by the spirit, and Frank is blamed because he kidnapped her, basically. <laughs> right. He wanders into the police station, though, and he tells them where she is, which is very funny after they're like, we won't see him for a while. Even if you have the state lines being watched, he's so resourceful. And, resourceful. <laughs> and he just like walks into the background of the shot. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> oh, man. Now, in order to get her to leave and maybe be a little safer, Frank tells Lucy that the restaurant was bullshit. And she heads into the car where Ray pops up again in the back seat. This interrogation scene is just outrageously good. Michael J. Fox really looks harried here. And this is when Jeffrey Combs really gets to let loose. You know, he reveals this lead breastplate by ripping his shirt open. He proclaims that Frank is the cause of every unexplained death. And this figure is just his rationalization. He is really just off the rails in the very best way. Yeah, he's convinced Frank Bannister is killing people with the power of his mind, based on an old experiment that he did research on. And and I agree. I think Michael J. Fox is acting his ass off in this in this section of the movie. That you understand why he is who he is when you see how he portrays this. Like he's he's not all he's not all comedy. He's got some like real dramatic chops through this next few scenes of the movie. Definitely. Now, Lucy visits Frank's house, and she sees the memorial garden planted where the basketball court was going to be. Set up, payoff. Exactly. It works really well. We see how he's really tied himself to this moment, and he feels a lot of guilt, perhaps rightfully so. Although, perhaps not rightfully so, because, you know, maybe she was killed by um, by this figure, as, as we see. So That's true. 
And also there's the, the house is this nice representation without getting too film nerdy about it. The house, you know, much like the spirits that Frank surrounds himself with who are sort of decaying and falling apart and, and wanting to move on to the next realm. This house is sort of symbolically doing the same, this like this echo of his past life. That's kind of like, you know, he's actually chopping it down and using the firewood to keep himself warm. And it's, it's a really nice uh, allegory. Yeah, definitely. Now, she hears a a voicemail being left that says, help, Patricia is communing with the evil one. <laughs> Again, as you do. And <laughs> she's like, well, there's no Frank here. So I guess I got to go check this out. And it's a really amazing POV shot from Ray where we get to see the house and it's just evil as hell, man. <laughs> this thing is leaking and breathing. Like, it doesn't look like a house anymore. It's awesome. Yeah, no, it's so good. It's so good. One thing that I really love about this movie is that the writing in it is so smart, even in just these little moments where having Ray trotting along at Lucy's heels is such a great way to make sure that we can understand ghost stuff without having to shackle Lucy to Frank. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah, I don't think I've even considered that. He, to this point, has been our only way into the ghost world. But now that we've been introduced to Ray and, and his connection to Lucy, you know, I just think that this is is so brilliant. It, it just blows yeah. me away. Well, and also, it's. It, I think it's just worth mentioning that despite this overall movie having a bit of a, a, a cartoon, it, it's a bit cartoonish in sort of what it's tackling and sort of the, the ways it's going about its storytelling. Yet none of the characters are complete cartoons. Like they're quirky, they're big, they're colorful, but they all have a bit of humanity to them that allow us to sort of connect with them in a way. Even this Ray character, who you could see in, uh, other filmmakers handling this type of movie, this Ray character would just be a despicable piece of garbage. <laughs> but like, you kind of like Ray. I mean, he's a jerk. But you kind of like him and you kind of empathize with him and that helps you connect with him. So as he's sort of going along with Lucy into this sort of sinister house, there's a real sense of danger for this character who, you know, could easily be just a throwaway. I think that kind of goes for all of the characters in the movie from from uh, Jeffrey Combs character to uh, maybe maybe um, Jake Busey would be the the only one that's just sort of a a one note, just pure evil character. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that it does help to make the world feel a little more lived in, even if it is fantastical in that way that there are ghosts walking around. Right. Uh, I also, this seems like as good a time as any to say that one of the elements of the ghost design that I really love is the leaking ectoplasm that looks like tears. I think that it works really well all the time as just like a general creepy thing. But in these moments where it's like, well, they're a ghost, it's kind of hard for them to emote, it can kind of stand in for these, like, tears that he is clearly sad about Lucy not being his wife anymore. I agree. It, it, gives, it gives, again, characters that could be cartoons, that could be, especially because, uh, especially with Frank's ghosts that are all very iconic, almost characters of different time periods, it gives them some sense of, like, of uh, not just decay, but like, like, like you said, like a creep factor and like a, like a, an evolution that like, you can't ever just see them as cartoonish figures because you understand that they are falling apart before your eyes. I, I really, I really appreciate that too. Yeah. It also ties their designs together, gives them something that they all have considering that they are all dressed up in the, the clothes of their era. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Lucy makes her way to Patricia, who seems pretty distraught, and takes her to her mom's room. But when they hear dear old mom approaching, she shoves Lucy in the closet and leaves. But in the closet, Lucy finds the box cutter that was missing from Frank's toolbox after his crash, implied to be what he carved the number into her head with. What a reveal. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting watching. I mean, having seen it many times, it's interesting how well these these twists worked. In retrospect, knowing where it's going and knowing which characters are evil uh, and which are are not necessarily, I feel like it's so telegraphed. Like nothing that these like seemingly innocent characters are doing seems normal, but like mm-hmm. it totally works for me. And I guess some of this has to do with my preconceived notions of the genre or or the way that he's sort of playing it. But um, this fr- this this knife in the closet uh, immediately, I, I bought right into it that somehow her her mom was the murderer. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And an urn that Pamela claims hold her father's ashes starts to glow with red smoke and the frightener spirit pushes out of the wall, swiping off Ray's face and throwing what I can only describe as a double corpse on the hood of the car. <laughs> she rushes back to see Frank, but uh, he's afraid of hurting Lucy. Suddenly, he sees the number 41 appear on her forehead, and the spirit appears out of nowhere. Again, really great writing, because you've now established that he is his, his intention is, I'm going to keep her safe, I'm going to do that by standing perfectly still, but now there's a ticking clock, the number is on her head, standing still has clearly not worked, so we can get the movie going again, and it, and it is such a great way of putting Frank to the side for a second so that Lucy can go and do her thing and and we can get this revelation and then putting him back in the story without it feeling like it was shoehorned in. Right. And then also they're in a jail cell, right? So he's complete. Is is this the scene you're talking about? Uh, Yeah. Right. Cause he's like, Oh, well, all right, I guess time to go. Let's stage jailbreak. (laughs) Right. But I, I mean the, the feeling of that moment when he's, he, he turns to her and she has the number carved on her forehead and he's in a jail cell that's about the size of a small bathroom. And you realize that the Grim Reaper's coming for him is a, is a pretty like, that's a pretty stressful moment it could, because in the, in the moment you're not, you're like, how is he possibly going to save her within the confines of this space? Yeah. Uh, luckily Cyrus and Stuart are also there to, to help them fend off the spirit that appears from out of nowhere. And she calls for the guard so that she and Frank can stage a jailbreak. Unfortunately, uh, Stuart also has to double die in order to hold off the spirit. <laughs> I mean, what, I, I was, we were kind of debating on the rules of, of how you kill a ghost afterwards, because it seems to be that they are, ki- you can kill a ghost with a, a ghost, a ghost scythe, yeah. right? It seems like you might also be able to kill a ghost with ghost bullets. It did seem that way, didn't it? They were like worried about judge hitting them. So yeah, but, but you can also slow them down with human bullets. Mm. I don't know. It's a little bit murky. It gets a little bit murky in this area. I I have to say, well, this is why we need frighteners Two, starring Jeff. That's right. right. (laughs) In order to fight this spirit, Frank says that he needs to have an out of body experience. So Lucy puts him in the freezer to slow his heart. Them both touching the glass that looks like a porthole 
seemed like a reference to something, although I couldn't place the specific after all the like poltergeist stuff and, and maybe some Halloween references. Felt like a reference, couldn't place it. I don't know. <laughs> it's got a little bit of that prison, the prison glass thing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now the problem is, Agent Dammers arrives, and he intends to stop her from reviving Frank, pulling out a damn submachine gun. <laughs> but here comes Frank's spirit, and he falls through the floor, while Dammers takes Lucy hostage in the police car. And... Again, very funny moment for him where she's yelling at him and he freaks out, but like drowns it out with music. It's just such a fun character. You know, it's so like the character itself has overthought everything, but he is so hyper aware of his own flaws and compensates for them in a way that you have to respect it. I a hundred percent. I mean, the, the, uh, we didn't talk about the hemorrhoid pillow that he carries with him everywhere, which he actually earlier in the scene during the interrogation, he goes to sit down and decides against it. It's a like, hard metal nervously. chair. It's a hard metal chair. I think that was also, again, I hate it when I, I say these things. And then I like, when I listen to a podcast and somebody's like spouting off the wrong information, but I have a feeling that I heard that that was also another one of Jeffrey Combs ideas that he carries around this small ring with him wherever he sits because of some sort of component of his backstory that he had created, which I don't even want to get into. (laughs) Well, I love it. I love it very much. And Frank sees the spirit in pursuit and he gives chase himself. And they fight in the road for a while while Dammers and Lucy park at the cemetery. And when she yells again, he has a bit of a freak out exacerbated by the memories brought on when she notices the swastika stat, uh, tattooed on his palm, and he reveals that his first mission for the FBI was to infiltrate the Manson family as a sex slave. And he shows her the rest <laughs> of the fucked up shit that's been done to him over the years by the Sons of Lucifer, the Cult of the Dead, various others, to demonstrate that she will not break him. <laughs> Amazing. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that has been cut out of the theatrical version. Wow. That I knew there was something I knew there's some all of the sex cult stuff and a lot of the sexual stuff in the movie was cut out from the theatrical version. And that whole uh, monologue was reduced down to just I, my body is a roadmap of pain. <laughs> wow. Well, that is a crime because this monologue is wild. <laughs> <laughs> I love when he thinks that he's the one who turns on the car when Frank tries to break Lucy out of there. <laughs> so good. So good. But Arlie Ermy throws him in a grave before getting sliced in half by the spirit who attacks Lucy again. Frank gives her some time to flee to the car, but she has to contend with Dammers too, all while dealing with the ticking clock of having to get back and resurrect Frank. There is just so much pressure on this character, and as us or on us as an audience, wanting Frank to not friggin' die in this lackluster way after all of this. So, great stuff. Uh, yeah, amazing. And an and amazing setup to, to what you're about to describe next. Yes, the little glob of spirit goo that flies off from a bullet first starts off looking like the Necronomicon, but then when he beats up on it a little more, reconstitutes and takes the form of Johnny Bartlett. Then... <laughs> Carrying on the good work, he says, and now he's got a score of 40. Great reveal. Really <laughs> That's right. great. That's right. That's right. And I, I've, also, I've wondered before because, like, when it reveals him, you know, his face, it's like uh, Jake Busey's face. 
in the slime. And I've wondered if like one of the reasons they cast Jake Busey is because he has such a distinct face mm. that it would pop through with it, even within these like sort of CGI sort of artifices. I would believe that. I would definitely believe that. <laughs> <laughs> the goo gets away by falling into a crack and down into a crypt. And he reforms some more and fights Frank. But right before Frank is about to take him out with the scythe, Frank is dragged back to his body as Lucy and another doctor revive him. Again, really great way to make it feel like things are still progressing without going, without jumping ahead to the end. You know, this feels like we knew that Lucy was going to revive him. We knew that Spirit Frank had a limited amount of time. So the pull away is like, ah, oh, he was so close, but I get it. So good. So good. I, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. It's like she's she has to revive him, but she revives him at the very last second as he's about to like kill this thing and end the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Now he tells Lucy about Bartlett and she runs to get Patricia, who says that she already knows about Johnny and Johnny's ghost shows up, revealing that Patty is in on it the whole time. And she was a fellow murderer all along, even killing her mom. Which is something that her mom, which is something that her mom tells us in the very beginning of the movie. She basically looks right at her and says, they said she was an accessory to the facts, but I know the truth. Can't trust her. She says it. (laughs) And we trusted her and we pay the price. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But while Patty is distracted by Bartlett, Lucy discovers Mrs. Bradley's corpse. So now she's in on it, or she's aware of Patricia's being in on it. So Patricia attacks, as does Johnny, as the floor. But Frank arrives, and he's all—he's starting to help fight it off as well. I love the painting attack too. The like oh, where he yeah. sm- smashes it down on him, where he—and it's like he's in the painting. He was like possessing it and like climbing out. Really uh, cool stuff. Really cool. <laughs> But he gets slammed back into his urn, and Frank says that they need to get him to the other side, heading for the chapel with Patty still in pursuit. Frank has a vision of the sanitarium as it was, getting directions to the chapel, which, again, very fun and interesting way to deliver that information, makes sense within the world. The idea of the building itself being so permeated by the the strength of the memories here... It totally makes sense to me. I love the way that it's it's handled with Frank kind of slowly fading into it. Just totally works for me. It's amazing. I mean, I think it's like such a great example of a filmmaker heading into the third act and saying like, how do I take what we've seen so far has been so out of this world, so big, so bombastic. How do we take that and then level it up one more time? And it's like, okay, instead of Frank sort of seeing these individual spirits that are lingering, let's thrust Frank into the past and see this thing happen firsthand. And then not only that, but he's sort of jumping back and forth between the the 50s and present day in a way that's making it harder for him to accomplish his mission because he keeps getting intercepted by these spirits and these sort of echoes from the past, which is, I agree, it's wonderful storytelling. Uh, It's very like visually stimulating and it just adds so, so much depth to this like final sequence. Totally. And because he's being slowed down in his mission, this gives uh, both Patricia and Agent Dammers time to catch up and create this this new tension of them having to deal with this chase again. Um, It's just all working perfectly. They're right on their tails. Dammers grabs Lucy, keeping her quiet while Frank looks for her. But she escapes and heads for Frank 
in an elevator. The problem is, this elevator noise attracts Patty's attention right before she finds Frank, and the two reunite at the elevator where she passes him uh, Johnny's urn. Another possible reference here where um, Frank breaks into the chapel looking an awful lot like he's Jack coming for Shelley Duvall. (laughs) (laughs) The destruction causes the urn to launch through the air, though, only to be caught by, you guessed it, the agent. Amazing. (laughs) Dammers. Just killing it. Well, that's the, the, all the mechanics, you know, what we were talking about earlier of of there being so many different threads in the movie, they all collide so well in this, in this final moment where every time each one is sort of creating like a, it's a Rude Goldberg-esque series of events in which, uh, you know, Frank and Lucy are are unable to accomplish this very simple task because they keep getting intercepted by various (laughs) other sort of storylines that are colliding. Yeah. And I also think that this moment is really interesting because the whole time Dammers has been so confident that this is all a delusion of Frank's and that it's his own stubbornness that is in fact leading to these deaths. But Dammers's stubbornness is actually what's leading to these deaths because we see him constantly getting in the way and stopping these uh, potential uh, thwartings. And even here where he releases Bartlett in an effort to break through Frank's delusion, you know, if he wasn't so confident that he was right, even if he was just a little more understanding and maybe let Frank just like work it out, <laughs> this all would have been friggin' solved. That's right. Yep. That's right. <laughs> he does shoot him in the arm with an Uzi as well, though. So maybe it wouldn't have been <laughs> <That's> okay. <right. laughs> Before he kills Frank, though, Frank purposely drops through the floor, letting the newly arrived Pauline shoot at him, miss and explode Dammer's freaking greasy-haired noggin. <laughs> to immediate ghost head and surprise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Frank realizes that Patty is the one who killed his wife, and it looks like she manages to kill Frank, too. She gets a pickaxe, and she prepares to kill Lucy, but the spirit of Frank grabs her by the soul and pulls her towards the other side with him. <laughs> who knew you could do that? Who knew? Um, I love it, though. I love that they taunt Johnny into following after with them. Like, this is th- this is where him being a little bit of a cartoon pays off in a good way. In that you're like, yeah. sure, he would fall for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They stop in the tunnel as Frank makes it into heaven, greeted by Stuart and Cyrus, just in time for the tunnel to turn into a fleshy hell tunnel of tentacle worms <laughs> it is madness it goes through johnny's like facial orifices in some truly horrific imagery this feels like it comes so out of left field that makes it so effective it really does it really does yeah it's awesome and then it like swallows them whole and then you know it slowly reveals itself like at first it's these sort of uh, toothy tentacle creatures that come out of the walls, and then, like you said, it kind of they wrap in through their eyes, their mouths, their heads, and then it sort of pulls back to reveal, in, in an almost like Star Warsy type fashion, that they're inside the bowels of a giant tentacle creature that then oh, yeah. uh, growls and twists down into uh, the fiery pits of hell, which is is a classic, lot. classic. <laughs> Frank looks around in amazement. 
and his wife walks out of the clouds to tell him it's time to go home and start living, getting pushed back into his body as she says, be happy. He comes back to life, and Lucy is relieved and gives him a smooch. Um, They demolish the ruins of the house sometime later before being interrupted by the sheriff, who wraps things up by concluding that Patricia used a Ouija board to get in in contact with Johnny. I love Frank literally saying, nice epilogue. You know, we all know what's happening. Yeah. (laughs) As if we really needed the explanation for how she brought her boyfriend back at this point in the game. Um, The sheriff also asks Frank to collaborate on a book, but Frank declines and makes uh, reference to someone in the car. Turns out to be Agent Dammers' ghost looking extremely grim. (laughs) Um, Lucy comments on this as well. It turns out that the trauma made it so that she can see ghosts now, too. Very fun. Nice little connection for them. Don't Fear the Reaper plays over the credits. Hell yeah. That's it, baby. The end. <laughs> That's the good stuff. Um, it's, it just wraps up so, so well. And now, Ryan, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. Oh. Yeah. You, you you set yourself up for this, and now wow. we're both, we're both going to defend it. I will do the same. I will also say that this is the best horror movie ever made but I am going to make you go first. Oh man. Okay. Um, I guess it depends on what you want from your horror film. Uh, if you want a very simple, clean, straightforward, scary, boring movie. Sure. Stick, stick to the, stick to your Halloween, stick to your Friday the 13th. But if you want a movie that has everything, if you want a movie that has heart, that has adventure, that has some genuine scares, that has beautiful, effects both practical and visual uh if you want a movie that takes a whole town and sort of descends it into a uh, a curse as the grim reaper is sort of pulling people's hearts from their chests uh if you want michael j fox uh in one of his most amazing performances that so many people haven't seen it's criminal <laughs> uh i think i think if you like lord of the rings i think if you if you love uh, Peter Jackson's original stuff, if you like Zemeckis and Spielberg and you love the sort of imagination that uh, horror and genre cinema used to have that I feel like has been stripped away to some degree in modern uh, times, uh, this is the epitome. This is, is all, everything that you want. It's the kitchen sink movie in the best possible way. Uh, and it, I think it sort of honors and celebrates all the things that are wonderful about horror, but elevates it to a new level. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I don't mind saying that Peter Jackson is one of the film luminaries of our generation. And I think that Lord of the Rings by itself would be anyone else could retire on that. But the fact that he has so many incredible movies through his filmography and they all really kind of the Venn diagram of them concludes right here with the frighteners. This is the connective tissue and it's so fascinating on a completely removed from the actual stuff in the film way that once you start actually getting into the movie and how good and fun and funny it is, 
I mean, it's just on another level. The performances, we've been gushing about them the entire time. Jeffrey Combs is absolutely on another level. Michael J. Fox is really putting it in in a, in a role that is not necessarily uh, his typical oeuvre. And I, I just think that the effects are fantastic for what they were. They're still pretty good compared to some stuff that I see today. And the imagination behind them really helps to carry through any of the, the visual flaws. It's just so fun. And to me, horror is a genre that is about fun. And that's got to make this the best horror movie ever made. You're speaking my language. I think the only thing that we have to do now is to figure out how we can get Peter Jackson to make another horror movie, right? So this isn't his final entry into his series. <laughs> so true. So true. Peter, I'm willing to amend this. If you come back and make another horror movie, <laughs> I will consider that for the title of best horror movie ever made. So big stakes. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> Ryan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. I want to give you a chance to plug anything. If you want to plug, I will plug the mortuary collection, which people should absolutely check out. Oh, thanks man. Uh, yeah, the mortuary collection, you can watch it on shutter. If you have a subscription or you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on Blu-ray. The Blu-ray is really cool. I'm really proud of it because one of the things, you know, one of the things we didn't really talk about, but, you know, the elements that sort of inspired me to sort of get into film, become a filmmaker, was not just Peter Jackson's films, but also the behind the scenes uh, featurettes that he would include in all of the Lord of the Rings uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. And so as we were shooting the Mortuary Collection, we kind of inspired by that had uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Nathan Beaver, who was following us every step of the way and shooting um, the whole process. So we ended up with 11 hours of edited behind the scenes uh, content and yeah. we were forced to boil that down into two solid hours of behind the scenes uh, videos, commentaries, uh, the whole ball of wax. So it's sort of a nuts and bolts way of how we made the Mortuary Collection beginning to end on the Blu-ray. I'm not making any money off saying this. I'm just telling you because I want people to see it because I think it's, it's really cool and especially for aspiring filmmakers. And then actually just yesterday, we announced that we are releasing the uh, vinyl uh, soundtrack for the Mortuary Collection. You can pre-order it now uh, on Ship to Shore Records. So check it out. It has amazing artwork uh, by this incredible artist. And uh, it is, uh, the, 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 it's the original songs from the, from the movie as well as the soundtrack. It's, it's freaking awesome. So definitely check that out. Yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, I'm excited to check out that Blu-ray myself. I am a big proponent of physical media, and uh, that's exactly why is you get those great behind-the-scenes stuff, and um, I can't wait to go out and get that. So check that out for sure if uh, you haven't yet. Uh, as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. Uh, that's pretty much the username across everything, including the Patreon, where for just a few bucks a month you can get all kinds of bonus episodes and stuff. We just... Uh, had a, a Patreon episode where we ranked our top five uh, shorts from the first 10 seasons of uh, Treehouse of Horrors. And mm. we're also uh, going to be covering the uh, 2015 Goosebumps movie coming up soon. Um, so that'll be fun. Uh, very, very light stuff. Stuff that doesn't necessarily fit into the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> so, but very, but very Halloween appropriate. Exactly. Exactly. Sure. Um, that's it for me. Thanks again, Ryan and everyone have a good Halloween.